Hi everyone, I'm Josh. And I'm Jim. And this is The Dapper Meeple. This show is about our love of gaming, the games we play, and the gaming community around this passion. So grab some snacks, pull up a chair, and join us at the table with your monocle and bowler hat. Hey kids, remember, this is an adult podcast and may contain adult language. Also, the Dapper Meeple outfit, not required. Hey y'all, we're back, and we've got a great guest lined up for our show today. We met at Gen Con, and this guy's passion for the hobby is so big, he's convinced his employer to come and see what's going on. Jensen Gisborne has been a longtime fan of TTRPGs, Warhammer, New Dice, and he's hoping for a Crix comeback soon over at War Machine. So we're going to quit talking to you so we can go talk to him on this episode of The Dapper Meeple. So we've always talked about one of the greatest things that we get to do because of this podcast is meet people that are in the industry, game designers, people that are making uh, dice and hobby trays. And again, we get the opportunity to talk to somebody. We met at Gen Con this last year when we were up there uh, working for the guys over at BA Games. And we got a chance to talk, uh, just kind of get a little bit of his insight on what we do and uh, what we could be doing. And he has talked to us about coming on to the show, and we are more than happy to have him. He is a 20-year Dungeon Master, Dice Enthusiast, Theory Crafting Nerd, and the Vice President of Partnerships for Romaine Berg. Uh, Jensen Gisborne, welcome to the Dapper Meeple. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's, uh, it, was, you know, it was really cool to, to meet you guys at Gen Con, and, and I'm really happy where this kind of folded itself out to. Um, because, you know, this is, a, this is an industry that I love so much that... I forced a company that had never touched gaming into gaming specifically so I could be around more people in gaming. So <laughs> awesome. One of us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a very much create your own destiny type. <laughs> that's right. Before before uh, before they worked with me, I've been there just over two years now. And before I was there, they were mostly agriculture and manufacturing. And I said, how about game publishers <laughs> and here we are uh, one Gen Con later and uh, and here we are. So. That's awesome. So with everybody that we bring on, what we like to start with is kind of your geek bona fides. It's just where you came from, what brought you here. Like when we talk about it, um, I kind of came into this sphere through like TTRPGs. Uh, Josh came in with more of kind of like trading card games and board games. So we always like to talk about what happened in your life uh, for you to be where you are now in this hobby. Well, I'll do my best not to let the story run away. Okay, um, gotcha. But it, it is, you know, I don't, I think, I think my story's typical. We all kind of think our own stories are typical. <laughs> uh, but I actually had, I'm Canadian. Um, I had moved across the country uh, when I was nine years old. And obviously, you know, got, got to a new place in the world, didn't know anybody. Um, and at the time, a good friend, someone who ended up becoming a good friend of mine, uh, he also moved to the same place, same school. Um, and his dad said, round up some friends. I'm going to teach you guys how to play a game. So at the age of nine, uh, we all got into a public library and we were shown how to play D and D third edition. Nice. Uh, and that would have been in, uh, 2000. So, um, you know, it, it kind of stuck and not going to lie. It was the guys who ended up in that library multi-purpose room that were the guys who were the best men at my wedding so that's fantastic <laughs> it, uh, you know throughout the ages we've been uh D&D onto D&D 3.5 uh 
a uh, little bit of uh, D&D 4th Edition, Pathfinder, Starfinder, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch. Uh, on the card game side, Magic, Yu-Gi-Oh, um, the Dragon Ball Z card game for a hot second. Um, you know, we've we've gone through it all um, now that we're all a little bit older. It's more board games when we get the chance to get together. But right. even in, you know, loving board games, um, you know, right now we're huge into Scythe when we get a chance to play it. Oh, yeah. Big game. game, that is. Yep. Um, and then I actually, I don't know, I actually have Hero Realms here on my desk. Um, I love <laughs> all the yep. stuff, uh, you know, the people over at Wise Wizard Games, what they're making. Star Realms and Hero Realms are a huge staple of, of everything I have. And then I play a lot of 5th edition D&D online now. Um, and uh, I, I love it. I'm actually, 5th edition D&D was the first game that I made the decision to um, have a full physical set of products. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I've actually physically got every fifth edition DD product up to date as nice. of now um and as they come out i, I get them uh, okay. because i just wanted a full collection of of one of these things i love so much right <laughs> right you, yeah. you say your story is pretty typical and it's amazing for us how especially in the ttrpg side of it how groups that start and do well that may stay together for a couple of years end up being people that stay together for years and like yeah. you said they become the best men at your wedding they are people that you call, you know, when you're visiting from out of town, there are people that you get together with, you know, and it's a genuine friendship that develops around the table. Yeah. So, yeah, um, fifth editions are kind of our favorite. I started playing uh, with second edition. Uh, so that's been a while ago. Um, but you mentioned more than just D&D. &D. There was a lot of TTRBGs in there. Is yeah. That, is that yeah. kind of uh, was that kind of your uh, like your main focus when you first got started? Yeah, when honestly, when uh, it was one of those things where um, I always found that I didn't have the pocket money for my parents that some of my friends did. And so TTRPGs seemed to be the lowest cost thing that right. I could do. Yeah. I, I really loved. Right. So, um, you know, when everyone else was doing the meta for Yu-Gi-Oh, um, I could get my hands on a couple of books and that would last me for a couple of years sometimes, <laughs> right? In, in playing the games that we love. So, you know, I still remember the novelty of getting my hands on like the expanded psionics handbook. Oh yeah. 3.5. Yeah. How amazing that was. And then being completely crushed when my friends didn't want to introduce psionics into the campaign we were playing <laughs> um, because that was the book I got, right? That was probably the only book I got that year. So <laughs> you want to talk about controversies in D and D, uh, the psionics and 3.5 was a big one. I mean, it's almost as bad as like the discussion over the combat wheelchair. Now, uh, yeah. it, it would resurface every like couple of years and people would just be so animately against it. And you're like, yeah. it, it's an imaginary world, guys. This will be fun. Trust me. Yeah. yeah. I heard a lot of the Warhammer. Yeah, because in there. War, that was a cost thing, right? Like, I love the Warhammer universe. I'm a huge fan of the Warhammer universe. Um, I have been reading the Horus Heresy novels. And I actually started reading them as an adult. So I've mm -hmm. been reading them now for like six years. OK, yeah, yeah. Um, I think I'm I think I'm 42 books into the into the series. Um, at one point I did have my hands on a, on a small unit of death, death guard, which I thought was really cool, but they were hand-me-downs for another friend that yeah, wasn't playing yeah. them anymore. <laughs> and, um, all of a sudden, you know, I, I got introduced to black library and then obviously what became, you know, fantasy flights properties. Um, and, uh, I just couldn't get enough of them. Mm -hmm. So rogue trader was our, or no, uh, sorry, dark heresy was our first, um, 
wild introduction for a lot of my friends to the 40k universe they had <laughs> no experience with it before that point um but then ultimately you know rogue trader was fantastic uh death watch was fantastic and then i did end up getting into some of fantasy flights other properties too um anima beyond fantasy was one that was a very flash in the pan TTRPG i was gonna say that was a quick one with far more crunch than it had any business having but <laughs> um it was fun i still have the book uh it's sitting here somewhere right right <laughs> um and uh yeah no it's it's uh, as far as the warhammer 40k i've never gotten into wargaming the way i'd love to but in saying that uh, i have a lot of love for uh war games that have deep lore um warhammer 40k obviously probably being the the king of the hill on that but also a huge 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 fan of privateer press and uh, and War Machine. War that Machine was... is actually the only other war game I've ever owned. Actually, it's the only war game I've ever purchased models for uh, myself. And um, I had a, a Crix, a little Crix battalion uh, back in college. And um, they're actually, you know, another um, acquaintance of mine from Gen Con. Now, uh, again, very cool when you play right? game in college and you meet the the, <laughs> the president of the company. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's uh, I, I've always had a lot of love for the story. I think the stories that are told through these games that we love. Um, and that's probably why a I attracted to the TTRPGs I have, but b attracted to things with deep lore. Right. So I've always played D&D in the Forgotten Realms. That's just where I've done it. Um, even when I integrated Eberron for the first time, I wanted Eberron to be a part of the Forgotten Realms. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah I understand that. With Warhammer 40k, um, I got way too into the history <laughs> of the Imperium of Man. It just it um, sucks you in. That universe it is does. just it's ah. Oh, there's so much lore that they have in it, and there's so much stuff that you just you read, and it's it's so over the top all the time. Like, oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, right? Yeah, it's it, fantastic. It, yeah, yeah, it is like a guilty pleasure just to be like, man, I don't like where things are in my world. Let me look at this. One. Oh, it could be worse. It could be worse. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Average life expectancy of an Imperial Guardsman, two and a half hours. Right. Love that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite faction, either in the lore side or, or for 40K? For 40K. Do I ever? So, um, <laughs> actually, uh, do I have those hats? So, if sitting here, these aren't up on the wall right now, but I've got my my Tau hat. That's here, right. Yeah, yeah. Right, and I've got my my Tyranids hat <laughs> right here. <laughs> um, so I do have those too. Um, honestly, the love for Tau came from a really early love for like mecha anime. That right. I, like I I watched Gun uh, Gun Wing Endless Waltz when I was a kid. Yes, Tons. Yes. So. That captured me, and I've been on the mech train ever since. Um, as far as, you know, the good old Imperium, um, I'm a huge Black Templars fan just because of how cartoonishly evil they are. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're the most evil good guys. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm very into that, yeah. Totally get that. A lot of people that I talk to, they're like, oh, yeah, man, I love Tau. It always refers back to, like, that, like, anime mecha all the time. Always. It's, it's <laughs> never the, oh, yeah, but they're here for the greater good. Nobody ever cares. No, no. They're like, no. I like big robots. Yeah, I like <laughs> rail guns at three miles away. That's what I'm shooting for yeah. here. So, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of agnostic in my regular life. Uh, so it amazes me that the group that I'm really drawn to is the Adeptus Serratus, the Sisters okay. of Battle. The Sisters of Battle. Yeah, and it's it's yeah. just regular humans that occasionally spawn miracles because they just believe so hard in this yeah. corpse that's been hanging around for 10,000 years. 
I uh, my my favorite little piece of lore with the uh, the sororitas is um, the the loophole as to why they exist in the lore. Yes, so the ecclesiarchy after the Great War was told they can have no man take up arms. Yes, and so they went. Well, what about all these women that work for us? <laughs> <laughs> and so they made an army on a legal loophole, which right. is the best kind of army. Yeah, be right. <laughs> hey, thank you, Gojman Dyer, for uh, letting us slip that one in because uh, that was your fault. Yeah. He recruited them, yeah. which did work out great for him. If y'all haven't, yeah, go read the lore. In the universe of Warhammer 40k, the early 36th millennium is known as the Age of Apostasy. Serving as the High Lord of Terra, Goge Vandire controlled both the Adeptus Administratum and the Adeptus Ministorum. His reign of strife and insanity lasted almost a century and was known as the Reign of Blood. During his reign, Vandire learned of a sect of warrior women utterly devout in their faith to the Emperor. Through deception, he convinced these daughters of the Emperor to serve him and act as his personal bodyguard. As factions within the Imperium realized the level of Vandire's insanity, they attempted to remove him from power, but were stopped by a force of well-equipped and well-trained women. These women fought off the Space Marines, believing that they were in fact protecting the Emperor himself and his Chosen. Eventually, a centurion of the Adeptus Custodes brought the leaders the daughters of the Emperor Alicia, Dominica, and her companions to the Golden Throne to look upon the Emperor. It was not recorded what took place in the throne room, but all of the sisters that entered left with stark white hair and marched immediately to Vandire. Alicia, Dominica, condemned Goge Vandire to death for his crimes against the Emperor and removed his head. Vandire's last words were, I don't have time to die. I'm too busy. The daughters of the Emperor became known as the Adeptus Sororitas, or the Sisters of Battle, and now serve as the militant arm of the church. So uh, Go read the lore. Yeah, right? It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on the Chaos side, I was actually a big Thousand Suns fan, too, for okay. a long time. Um, you know, um, hashtag Magnus did nothing wrong. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in that, you know, they did Magnus dirty. What did they expect? The Council in Ikea was an atrocity. So it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things where um, I am... I, I'm like weirdly into the 40k lore, right? Like people talk about like Trekkies, like I'm yeah. like that with yeah. the 40k lore. I'm really into it. So, yeah, <laughs> I've I've been reading it for the last couple of years. I kind of got into it. I've been fighting it because it's just like, man, there's so much. I don't know if I want to get my brain into that. Um, and then I think a buddy of mine was like, oh, let me tell you about Dreadnoughts. And I was like, all yeah. right, that's it. I'm in. I gotta go. I gotta go start reading it. So you've obviously heard then uh, just Cavill and his series that he's coming out with. Oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> so um I actually um this is another connection I've got the industry. Um I actually know the folks over at Artosorian Games. Um famously the um the the the, the father of Cyberpunk is uh, sitting at the head of of Artosorian. Um and they actually deal with both Cyberpunk and The Witcher. So I've, you know, got to see some really cool things uh regarding Cyberpunk and The Witcher as well. Um I've always been a big Witcher fan. I've been playing yep. Witcher 2 and 3 since they both came out. Um, so to see, you know, Henry Cavill do The Witcher and then hear everything he's talked about with, you know, I almost missed my edition for Superman because I was raiding in WoW. Like, yeah. I feel yeah. like he is the actor who was made for us. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. There's, yeah. Like, yeah. there's something about Henry Cavill that feels like he's tailor-made for the audience that 
that found him. And, um, you know, I, I couldn't be happier that someone who's a real fan um, has gotten their hands on, on the Warhammer IP for, for some kind of cinematic retelling. Right. I will say that um, just as a complete parallel, uh, I watched um, uh, Arcane recently for the first time on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I watched that and I went, these are the people who need to do the Warhammer animated series. <laughs> this animation style needs to be the animation style. Like I just, I, I can't get that out of my head, but you know, so if I, uh, if this ever gets out to Henry Cavill, right. Yeah. yeah he's ever listening them <laughs> and get them to animate the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was uh, like, again, I think you're right. If there's, if there's one guy that's going to do it, um, I just, the one thing I want to see, I don't know how they're going to do it, where they're going to start. Cause like you said, there's so much lore there to get into. Um, but at one point I want them to talk like a quick five minutes about the Horus heresy. And I just want yeah. every Primarch to be Henry Cavill, like just different. Right. Dressed up. As yeah. As right. As, like <laughs> it's like, uh, Mike Myers and Austin Powers. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping for. That's fantastic. Half the characters are one dude. <laughs> bad. Just a bunch of bad wigs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, man. So, uh, one thing real quick. So tell me what the difference between a dice enthusiast and a dice goblin is. So (laughs) that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think that there's a person with, um, like four or five or 20 crown Royal bags full Mm -hmm. of dice in a drawer somewhere. Yep. Yep. That's a dice goblin. (laughs) <laughs> gotcha right? yeah yeah they're they're ho- it's a horde they have a horde <laughs> of dice um i uh, i i have i have stuff like this right like like custom carved oh, yeah. okay. hardwood d20s and stuff yeah, so yeah. i i don't want to be like a dice snob but like i like cool dice right? with it's you. not just it's not just like bags of math rocks all over my house <laughs> um Right, this one's got, it's got a nice case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, when when people uh, bought me ha- have bought me gifts, even as an adult, for you know, it's my brother or whatever for birthday or some celebration, it's always like, oh, here's some brass dice that I found for you. Right? Yeah. And I keep them all sorted out. So when I when I say I'm a dice enthusiast, it's like the most pretentious way of saying I like dice that cost too much money. That's what that's hundred percent what that is. That's bone. Right. So, if, you got, if anyone has any bone oh, dice they dude. want to send me, I can't I can't get enough <laughs> dice made of bone. <laughs> so at what point does a uh, dice goblin become a dice dragon? Uh I don't know. Maybe the horde gets big enough you can live on it. <laughs> Maybe when you start going into the villages and burning down people's houses looking for more dice. I mean, you know, maybe that's uh... like I said, we met at Gen Con. We've talked since then. And one of the big things that we really wanted to get you to come in here and talk about, uh, like you said, your uh, company wasn't even looking at this area until you got in there. And obviously you have a love for it. And this is something that you wanted to be involved in. Uh, so yeah, we definitely want to talk to you about you know your view of the hobby community, board games, TTRPGs, uh, card games, all of it. Um, right. So we looked up some stats because uh, we've been tracking this for a while. Um, when we talk about like the board game market, the stuff that I found said that it was somewhere around nineteen billion dollars in twenty twenty three. Right. Um, and they're estimating it to hit thirty thirty three billion by like twenty twenty eight twenty thirty. Right. Like, is that yeah. 
is, is that really what's happening? Or because yes. I did get it from the internet, and well, yeah, no. So a, a stat that I actually I keep my back pocket to really communicate to to other people in my industry in the marketing world, um, the opportunities that exist in um, in gaming in the gaming world is you know obviously for the last ten years we've all been hearing about the cat like meteoric growth of the cannabis market in North America, right? Hobby gaming is set to outpace that market within the next 10 years. Oh, wow. That that's, that's the kind of growth hobby gaming is experiencing. Um, it's, it's wild actually how fast it's growing. Um, it's, it's catching up to a lot of other industries that, uh, are thought are being thought of much quicker as like mainstream industries. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has to do, there's, there's so many reasons for that, but most of those reasons are us. Um, we are that first generation of we'll just take our disposable income and <laughs> do things we enjoy doing with it. Right. <laughs> uh, we're the least likely to do the whole keeping up with the Joneses mentality, um, you know, and then there's I don't want to make this like sad, but like, let's be real. Millennials have a lot to take their minds off of. So, yeah. oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. And so it's it's one of those things where. Um, you know, we all grew up with these board games, board games got a lot more interesting. There was a, I th and I do think it's board. I do think board games are really, were like the pioneer. I, I still, to this day, will say that Settlers of Catan is the gateway drug into the hobby game yep, industry. Yep. We've heard that. So, so many people. Um, but it's, um, it's one of those things where, you know, we all value being able to sit down at a table and we can just do something we enjoy and we're not worried about showing off the things that make us happy and the way that we like to yeah. think and the way we like to speak and talk to each other and tell stories. And I think that there was a lot of social stigma, to be completely honest, um, in generations that preceded us that doesn't exist as much anymore. And people are willing to just, you know, love what they love and sit down with their friends and enjoy themselves. And yeah. um, I, I, I believe that that has a lot to do with it. Uh, now from there, it's a domino effect, right? It's, it, you get the first little cohort of people like that as adults, they start making money, grown up money, spending grown up money on things. Um, you know, you get, you get your first successful gloom haven, you get your first successful $200 <laughs> board game that goes out yeah. and all of a sudden, um, people with money smell the money and, and then the industry gets bigger because people from outside the industry are wanting to invest in it. Um, which again, I, I can't share details, but, uh, in my, in my side of the fence, I, I see that a lot. And I actually see a lot of almost like investment funds, like big like money from outside the industry willing to invest in, um, in, in board games and willing to invest in TTRPGs and willing to invest in card games. Um, especially when there's strong IPs involved, right? When you get a really yeah. good intellectual property involved in something, um, there is a ton of willingness um, to do something that would have been a absolute gamble once upon a time. Um, it's just not anymore, right? Yeah. Because the fans are there and the fans have money. So, um, <laughs> why, why not? Why right? wouldn't you give them what they're looking for? Right? All of us geeks grew up and now we have adult money. We'll do what we want. Yeah. The I... number of people who make board games who went to school for engineering blows my mind. <laughs> it's, so, it's so many of them. It's so many of them. It, it blows my, it absolutely blows my mind. Yeah, I, I think you see that that money, especially in stuff like Kickstarters, right? So you got look at Marvel Zombies, for example, right? A great IP, um, backed by a great game system with Zombicide, 
Um, yep. He comes in and, and breaks $9 million, you know, in their, in their campaign. Right. So like, I, I, I completely agree with that's, that's exactly what we were talking about uh, a couple of episodes ago is that there's this huge amount of these, uh, whether it be movie IPs or, you know, just all kinds of all over the place are now starting to make a board game version of whatever it is. Um, because like you said, now there's, there's money there. Like it's involved. Companies right. are able to jump in. Um, I, I question though, we, we like to talk about like local game stores and stuff like that too. Um, what part do you see those kind of playing in the industry? So, um, just knowing, um, a lot of people on, on kind of the production side and the development side of, of the industry. Um, I think that a lot of, I have to be really careful about how I say this sure, so I don't sure. get in trouble with anybody. <laughs> I I feel like a lot of these companies really want to have the relationship and they really want to rely on LGSs and those local game stores. Um, because I think that more than likely every single person has some kind of, you know, internalized love letter to their local game store wherever they grew up. Um, I, I, I believe that truly. Mm -hmm. Um, I also believe that we're in a really weird time with, um, hobby gaming distributors. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of them have gotten really, really big and they aren't maintaining the relationships with local game stores the way they used to. Um, which, so now you're seeing a lot of, um, the, the publishers and the developers, um, either trying to do direct sales to consumers through things like e-com or trying to reestablish those direct relationships with local game stores. Um, so I, I do think it's a little bit of like a, a moment of, of shift. Um, yeah, I yeah. think that local game stores, um, for anyone who is a local game store out there who listens to this, I think that if you have never in your time running a store thought to pick up a phone and call people who make games directly to try to make a deal to carry their stuff in your shop, Right now is a really good time to try that. Um, a lot of them are would love to do that. <laughs> nice, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, you know, let's call that my intuition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair. Let's <laughs> fair. <laughs> let's let's say that's my intuitive thinking, and not because I have these conversations all the time, right? But um, yeah, no, I I would say that um, there's a lot of of hunger for that direct relationship between local game stores and publishers. The unfortunate part of that is it's really hard to scale those relationships, right? There's so many local game stores uh, and publishers have to rely on getting their games out in front of as many people as possible so they can stay successful and and keep building their business. Um, But I I do think that if the uh, traffic kind of came from local game stores and said, Hey, we'd love to carry your game. We'd love to, we'd love to work with you. We'd love to do an event. There's very few of those publishers that would say no. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Gen Con and PAX U are the two big uh, conventions that we've been to. Yeah. For people that have never had that opportunity or I know some people are like, oh, man, there's too many people there. But there are people most of the time. Most of the time. There was that weird guy that took his shoes off and was walking around (laughs) barefooted. He's not one of us. Like, are the conventions, are they as big of a factor as they look like? I mean... Gen Con made, broke what, 60, 70,000 people this year? Gen Con was wild. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't it though? I only maybe got COVID at Gen Con. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which the odds, you know, that was pretty good. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. You're above average. You're fine. You're doing fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, honestly, I think those conventions are fantastic. Um, I ran into 
um, a Canadian uh, card game uh, uh, team um, that actually got into Gen Con last moment that were from the town, one of the towns I've lived in. Here. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. And they actually knew all the guys at the local game store that I grew up in. Oh, with. that's awesome. It was yeah. a really weird, really surreal experience. Um, but yeah, like, you know, they got exposed to 60,000 people, right? And they probably wouldn't have otherwise because they're from a town with 100,000 people in it in, you know, southern Ontario. I think the opportunity for these conventions, specifically, obviously, PAX Unplugged and, and Gen Con, are enormous. But even the smaller ones, um, yep. I, I'm a huge, huge, huge push for some of the smaller ones. The first gaming conference I ever went to in this capacity um, you know, from a business standpoint, it wasn't, I, it's not like I picked up clients from it or anything, but from a understanding the industry in this role, um, it was actually, it was at a state fairground in Ohio. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in February of 2023, uh, at the end of February, it was raining and it was like, end of february rain in ohio right yeah um, i had to drive an hour and a half outside of cincinnati to get there i, I go to this fairground it's like a big shed right and oh yeah uh, down I here we know there. what state fairgrounds look like we're with oh, you yeah. <laughs> yeah and and i go there and i was just like you know i had to i had to have this conversation with my team when i come back as to like why i was there and like why it was worth it but going there in that capacity for the first time what it did is it opened my eyes up to something else. We'll probably have a conversation with that next is, um, is the need for people who know how to promote products, know how to promote businesses, um, who actually have some love for the industry. Right. Um, because there's so few, right. Um, the vast, vast majority of people, um, in my world, in the marketing world, they've they've heard of D&D like that's that's the extent of it right and when they um when I was able to have those conversations with people whether it was Gen Con or the the smaller event um that I was at in Ohio or PAX Unplugged um it 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 feels sometimes like uh like almost like a relief that they're like oh okay okay someone Someone can, you get it kind of right. Right. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and it's really nice to be able to make those connections in like a meaningful way and, um, and show people that, you know, there's, there's, there, there is organizations out there that aren't branded as game publishing marketing organizations that do have people that kind of get the industry and understand what it's all about. Right. So, um, I, I think conventions are huge. Um, if you're going to go to a convention, especially if you're a smaller business, do what I did. I did not have a booth when I went there. I walked the floor for three oh, days. Yeah, so yeah. if you are going to get a booth, get a booth, but make sure you bring a second warm body that can just walk around and strike up conversations with people because those conversations you're going to have are going to open up doors for you in ways that you had no idea. So awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We, uh, yeah. like we said, we've met a lot of people. Uh, Pax Unplugged is kind of was our go-to for a while. This was our first year at Gen Con. Um, yeah. We've done some Mine too. We've yep. uh we've done some smaller ones like here in where we are they have the Tidewater Comic Con, those kind of meld with the, the gaming industry. There's a lot of crossover there. Yeah. Um. So hopefully, hopefully we'll actually have a booth there this year. Yeah. Um. Uh, but yeah. Uh. Some, Maybe I'll have to show up. When uh, is it? <laughs> May twenty something. Right on. Tidewater Comic Con is scheduled to be at Virginia Beach Convention Center May eighteenth and nineteenth, twenty twenty four. 
yeah, it's it's smaller, but I mean they've done well for a couple of years. But I think it's yeah. a really good introduction to yeah. uh, to prep people because going to a con is a is a marathon event. <laughs> So it's a ton of fun though. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a ton of fun. And maybe you do need to have like a like a like a big social battery for it, but um if you can if you can keep up for three days, three, four days, it's it's an it's a blast. Like it's an absolute blast. I, I can't wait to go back this year. So Yeah, we're we're definitely excited. Uh, I think the plan is to be back with the BA games guys again. Uh just cause it was I mean, PAX is one thing, but Gen Con is just a whole whole nother level. I yeah. just not only the amount of people, but even the amount of like vendors and distributors and all the people who were there with booths, the interactions you can have, the networking, all of that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I, I think agree. you, you I were talking about uh, one of the biggest things that you ever saw was the Walmart Warhammer deal that happened in front of you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I'm interested in this. Yeah. yeah so um, <laughs> We were we were wandering around as one does in Gen Con, and I ran into um, or I heard a conversation happening kind of right where I was hanging out at, and it was uh, some of the merchants, like the buyers for Walmart, uh, yeah. were having discussions with some of the Warhammer guys about bringing Warhammer to Walmart. Wow! Um, in in some capacity, and so I come from a background in retail and. Um, so I, I have some familiarity with how that process works when you're talking about big box retail, um, and to see that convert, those conversations happening, like right there on the convention floor, like it was kind of eye opening for me, um, because we've, you know, I've talked with the merchants. I, I used to work at Lowe's for a long time. Um, and I've had those talks with merchants and like, how does your job work? How does that happen? And then like to see this happening right here in, you know, on a convention floor was fantastic. So that it's, it's cool to see that, you know, not only is it a great con, you know, if you're just there to shop or to look at stuff, but I mean, to see the business side of it that still goes on there is just, it's awesome. Yeah. It's one of those things where, um, even if you can't do the whole like setting up a booth and everything like that, um, if you're if you're a game developer, like you should go. You should just go and you should talk to people and you should meet people and you should get business cards and you should follow up afterwards and you should create some relationships because those are all enormously important for your yep. business. Um, and and the reality is is um, and and in nowhere have I seen this as much as I've seen it in hobby gaming. Um, the pie is huge and there is more than enough for, for everyone to eat. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. if you are connected to everyone else in the industry, um, it makes all of that cross pollination so much easier. I don't know one person, uh, quick shout out to Magpie games, avatar legends, fantastic game. They're great people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. I don't know one person who would ever pick up the core rule book for avatar legends and not, have nine other games on their bookshelf right yeah uh, that's just the way it is right like that's just the way it works and so for for all of the um all of the game developers out there like to to go there and make those connections at those events um will do good things for you and will do good things for your business and i and i can't i can't support people doing that enough yeah that feels like that's a lot of it i know the girlfriend and i we're big fans of i don't know if you know dropout tv Okay. The guys that used to be college humor, uh, but they're the, yep. they're the ones that, that they do. They have a lot of game shows and stuff, but they do a lot of D and D streaming, which now that's live yeah, streams I mean, are all I over. Watch, 
Dimension 20. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Brendan Lee Mulligan, <laughs> he's really one of my favorites. But a lot of that started, we've talked about before, with the, the, the group over at Critical Role. I yep. mean, they came out swinging. Um, yeah, yeah. And I guess this is what happens when you get a bunch of voice actors together, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. that. But one of the things that we talked about is, man, they did it in video, too. And like you said, there's a stigma behind a lot of this from, you know, from the satanic panic to it was always, you know, boys hiding in a basement playing D&D. And then they come out and did videos and came out and did their broadcast. And like, they're all good looking people. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like even the most unusual person they have at the table, Talison, arguably conventionally attractive, like you can get away yeah. with it. So, yeah, no, it, it's definitely one of those things where um, I, I, I remember seeing a picture of uh, Joe Man, Man, Maganello. Maganello. Joe yeah. Maganello's, uh, his D&D den, his yeah. famous yeah. Los Angeles D&D den that he's got, where people like, you know, the guy, the showrunners from Game of Thrones and like Vince Vaughn and yeah. like all yeah. these people show up to play D&D in the basement. And um, it, it really, when you see things like that, when you see things like Critical Role, um, when you see things like the live play that, you know, um, uh, Dan Harmon did, uh, yeah, yeah. when you see things like now with Dimension 20 and I, I just it, it's impossible to not at least have a little bit of a passing interest when you get exposed to things like that. So those things getting huge and those things coming out and people seeing them, I've personally been asked more times in the last five years. Well, hey, can I? Can I see? Can I come to one of those? Yeah. Can I come to one of those games? Like I, I've been asked that more times the last five years, right, than I had in the previous 18 combined. And uh, that feels good, right? It yeah. feels good to know that there's other people coming in and other people wanting to experience the hobby. And, um, you know, some people have their grievances with things like Critical Role because of what it did to your average dungeon master and the <laughs> expectations of a player on a game. But... It got a lot of new people in. And like that's why even like Baldur's Gate 3. I love Baldur's Gate 3. Oh, so yeah. many people are interested in Dungeons and Dragons now. Right? It's yeah. fantastic, right? Like I can't be mad at that. And uh the more people in the hobby, the better the hobby is. That's the way I look at it. Right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And we both I know we've had several coworkers just we work in separate places and all and on both sides, people be like, Hey man, I heard you know how to play D D. Like it's always this real quiet conversation that starts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like we, you're selling fake watches in an alley or something. <laughs> <laughs> so there's obviously still a little stigma, but yeah, 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 yeah. That and that's the thing that's introduced more people to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that, like I said, we've talked to people that you know they went to their first con, or you know they went to the game store because a lot of ours around here, especially game stores, those friendly local game stores, are running events. They're running like adventure league. And those slots are filling up by new people who are like, oh, I can just show up whenever I want to and play. Um, it, it, it's really, I know in the last couple of years, even when we've been doing this, you just, you see it. You see how popular this has gotten now. When they were doing the writer's strike out in California, uh, Brendan Lee Mulligan showed up and did ran like a yeah. game with like 500 people or something. <laughs> like it's just, you know, those, those, those are becoming household names. They're becoming stars. I'm excited because, uh, like I said, I like them, and I don't think I'm going to stop playing anytime soon. 
So I, I think I think too like the the reluctance for a lot of people. It's not as cultural as it used to be. I think now it's just good old fashioned like shame. Like like it's it's <laughs> it's the whole like I, getting in front of people I only kind of know and acting silly is hard. Oh like, yeah I, yeah like yeah. That's really what it is, right? It's people. It's people just having to kind of get out of their own way and give themselves permission to be a little silly in front of strangers. Um, and if that's our biggest barrier now, sure. Sure. That's a great place to be in. Right. As far, as far as it goes, I don't think there's the same cultural like pullback from it as there once was. Um, now it's just people getting embarrassed, um, which is kind of fun unto itself. Right. So, well, I mean, that's that level of vulnerability that you, you bring to the table, Right. And when everybody buys in like that to the story, that's when you start making those lifelong friendships. Right. The, right. Yeah. It, that transcends, you know, the the teamwork that your two characters had transcends the table to be something more. And I, I think that's what the, the biggest draw about the tabletop gaming world is, is that the things we do around the table, the games that we play are really only a small part of the whole experience. Right. Yeah. You, you know, and going back to talking about the more people exposed, the better the games get, because, you know, we've talked about before you bring in people with different worldviews, different cultural backgrounds, different belief systems. And yep. now all of a sudden, everyone at the table is being exposed to something that maybe they didn't have before. Right. Mm -hmm. And what comes out of that is not only like lifelong friendships and you know, like a deeper connection with people, but also a growth just in general, right? Learning things about cultures and people that you never had experienced before, right? And right. I think that's something that this generation has gotten really good at. And I think that's why this generation a lot of times is is kind of on the forefront of like those social issues, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, we have these experiences and connections with people, whether that's around the game table or somewhere else, but we're experiencing these things and it's helping us to grow as people. And we, we definitely wouldn't be able to do half the funny voices we can do without it. <laughs> uh, that, I, I have so many horrible accents that I can do <laughs> that are directly attributed to my time playing D and D <laughs> like, Oh, this character is going to sound like this. And yep. then you just commit to it for 30 hours of play over the course of a couple months <laughs> by the end of it, you know, and then someone goes, Hey, can you do that voice you did for, um, for kit? And you're like, yeah. And then you have to think about yeah. the voice. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. Everyone like, that, but like that, even that moment, right. That's yeah. a moment that people have been playing D and a long time. We can all kind of share that moment and be like, yeah, yeah, I've done that. <laughs> right. And, um, it, it, it's, it's neat when you can have those, those, um, cultural ties through a hobby because just like you said right they bring people together that normally would have never been in a conversation never been in the same room never yeah. been at the same table right so uh no i agree completely yeah so you said you know your some of your first experiences getting into board games uh was settlers i played settlers like two or three times yeah because uh, i i had josh pulling me in anyway so we started <laughs> with completely different games uh, at least i did but um like, what do you think are some other games that, like, after Catan? What happens after Catan? Well, it, I guess it kind of depends on what about it you loved, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we, um, being longtime D&D players, we got always weirdly narrative with, yep. with playing <laughs> Settlers. Um, so, you know, there's the number of weird inside jokes in my little playgroup that came out of specifically Settlers of Catan were just 
there's too many there's too many of yep, them yep. we had one player that would make really weird deals that had nothing to do with the game in order to get trades he needed be like listen man i'll i'll make you a sandwich like right now give me some wheat <laughs> right like it's like and so you know we've got that whole aspect to it and, and that's because we were tabletop players we were tabletop yep, rpg yep. players so i feel like that like narrative almost like role-playing aspect that we kind of just layered on top of settlers um eventually brought us to games like scythe Right, which has yeah. its own narrative element to it. Um, I also played with other people with Catan that have led me to games like Ticket to Ride yeah. or Power, Power Grid, right? Yeah. Um, which are, if no one, if anyone who's listening to this has played Settlers of Catan and hasn't played Ticket to Ride or Power Grid, do Ticket to Ride first yeah. and then Power Grid. <laughs> Don't go straight to Power Grid because you'll spend three and a half hours learning it and you still won't be entirely sure how the game works. Yeah. The game will be <laughs> over really and you'll still be going, get... wait a second. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's really good once you get it under your belt. But um, it's, you know, it, it, it's it's Settlers of Catan taken to an absolute absurd degree of yeah. complexity. Um, you know, there's other games that... Um, I don't know. I think Ticket to Ride's a great game, personally. Yeah. I think Ticket to Ride's a really good second game after Catan. Um, I would probably also say, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I might say, um, like, Hero Quest. Because Hero Quest <laughs> right. is so yeah. much fun to play. Um, or even getting into some, like, fun card games that allow you to kind of take yourself a little less seriously, like Munchkin. Yeah. I think Munchkin's yeah. a fantastic card game to get people into, like, more hobby gaming um star realms hero realms those are super easy games to learn how to play um yeah though you know I, I it's a little bit of an eclectic list but it really depends on what about settlers do you like right do you like the stories that you tell with your friends do you like the strategy do you like the lying to everyone <laughs> you know about everything that's going on in front of you because there's lots of games like that go pick up werewolf you'll have a great time all right um, yeah. right right um but yeah that's uh I guess I named a few off there. This next year, uh, what are you hoping for? (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) Within within reason. Yeah, there we go. Honestly, I have been been playing less games over the last year than I had in the past. And I think a lot of that has to do with, it's funny, I start, you know, dipping my toes into the industry from a work side of it. And all of a sudden I have less time to play. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. which is feels bad um i am the one thing that's been a constant is i'm still keeping up with my my horace heresy saga (laughs) that i've been now reading for going on six years right but they did Um, just they did just publish the last book they said it's over they're not adding anymore so thanks i i've heard rumblings on specifically the um the the war machine subreddit Mm -hmm. that my favorite faction of cricks might be might be hidden in in war machine uh fourth edition Mm -hmm. um i've always been a huge poison slash zombie aesthetic guy so you know i was a i was a i was a mono black player in in magic and (laughs) i was a i was a golgari swarm player during ravnica and magic yeah yep i played death guard and warhammer so it's uh i've always had that um i've always liked that whole aesthetic in gaming um, so, you know, Cricks maybe maybe hitting the table in Warhammer or War Machine, rather, fourth edition um, would probably pull me back in, to okay. be honest. Yep. Yeah. Um, it'd be really cool if that happened this year. I should uh, I should see if I can get a hold of Matt Wilson and twist his arm. Um, <laughs> well, 
other than that, you know, I, um, yeah, just playing games more again. I know that, um, there's rumblings of some new stuff going on with Paizo. Um, I played a lot of Starfinder, uh, first edition. Mm-hmm. I loved Starfinder. It was a great game. I kind of missed Pathfinder second edition. It didn't, it didn't grab me the way, uh, the first one, the first edition did. Um, but, um, I wasn't able to get my core gaming group into path, uh, Starfinder first edition, which I thought was weird. Cause we all played dark heresy and, um, some of the star Wars D 20 games together as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe seeing uh, a resurgence of Starfinder would, would let me get those friends back into it. And, uh, I'm actually running my first game of cyberpunk red, which I'd never run before. Oh yeah. I've um, seen that one. Right. And so anyone who's a fan of things like Shadowrun mm-hmm. or even honestly, even if you played Cyberpunk 2077 and uh, you're like, I'd love to try a and d esque game. I'd love to try a tabletop RPG. Go grab yourself a copy of Cyberpunk Red. Um, it's a super cool, super cool system. And realistically, without cyberpunk like we wouldn't have properties like blade runner and right Judge oh, Dredd say, and yeah. robocop and terminator like those things just wouldn't exist without cyberpunk yep so to kind of see the the origin of where all those things came from is uh is a really cool thing but i'm really excited to play my first game of cyberpunk red this year hey man we really appreciate you coming on and talking with us and sitting down uh this is exactly the kind of thing that we always love is yeah i hope i didn't ramble too much no you're perfect <laughs> we do the same thing by ourselves when uh we're here so don't don't feel bad at all you should hear some of our on. opening monologues i'm amazed that i haven't gotten a cease and desist letter from hasbro yet um <laughs> like, yeah i think i dodged all the landmines legally i had to dodge on this podcast so <laughs> good to go good to go right. that's really what yeah, we, uh, i'm pretty sure i did i'll find out as far as we're concerned uh what is it no publicity is bad publicity so if we get wrapped up in something maybe we'll get in the new york times it'll be great everyone should definitely play cyberpunk red everyone should definitely try out avatar legends perfect i love this industry yeah i love hobby gaming i love tabletop gaming um i really 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 want to be some small part of um hobby gaming getting itself out there in the world getting exposed to new people and, you know, people, there's a lot of people in the hobby gaming world that, that uh, recoil from the, the financial side of it. But the reality is the more money we can get coming into hobby gaming, the more cool stories get told, the more cool games get made, right. games that never would have been made 10 years ago, all of a sudden get a little bit of funding and they can take off and do great things. Um, you know, for anyone who's played Dice Throne, I guarantee oh, those guys never thought they were going to get a Marvel license, but here we are. Yeah. So... Yeah. Um, yeah, that's one of our top three games. Easy. Just, so good. And we've, so good. Yeah, and we've got all of them. All of them, baby. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, it's one of those things where, you know, there's the opportunities right now in gaming are endless. Mm-hmm. And if you have an idea for a, you know, resource based card game where just the citizens of earth have to rebuild after every time goku destroys it like go for it <laughs> right because maybe that would be a fantastic game <laughs> you know what's right? coming right i know what's yeah, coming <laughs> or maybe uh having to deliver pizzas into a dungeon that's 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 the right. premise we'll get there we're working on it so. yeah like it's 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 something that especially especially right now i i almost i almost want to like coin the coin the term age of ip um 
everyone who owns intellectual property is looking for more reasons to license it out right now. Mm -hmm. And with how popular gaming is getting, how popular hobby gaming is getting it, if you have a really good idea that you can link to an existing intellectual property that has a fan base, call them. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, amazingly yeah. easy to get a hold of Crunchyroll executives on LinkedIn. I've done it multiple times. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> just, just DM them yeah. and say, hey, I've got an idea for a game. I'm interested in licensing whatever yeah and yep. chances are they'll have a conversation with you um it, just do it just yeah. pick up the phone that's that's you know if i could leave here with any wisdom for anyone who listens it's just go for it because right now is probably the moment where it will you'll have the most opportunity um to make something succeed awesome so, love yeah. it so jensen if people do want to reach out to you and get a hold of you how can they do that Honestly, it's it's one of those things where there's a couple different reasons people would even want to talk to me. Um, definitely not socially, because uh, that's <laughs> I'm not that interesting, right? I feel like they'd be wasting their time if they just want to chat for that reason. But you know, I would love to anyone who's out there who wants to chat about their their business in gaming. Um, you know, talk about different strategies on promoting them, getting a hold of you know LGSs across the country, things like that. Um, even IP, like I deal a ton in the IP world. You know, if there's an intellectual property that you've got your your mind on and want to integrate it into your game, there's a good chance I've crossed paths with the IP holder at some point in my career. Um, so absolutely getting a hold of me, Jensen Gisborne on LinkedIn is probably the best way. I don't know got how it, much yeah. of your crowd is LinkedIn people, but LinkedIn is absolutely the best way to get a hold of me. Um, you know, hey, I heard you on the Dapper Meeple podcast. Let's chat. That's the best way to do it. Um, if you know, you're looking for me, uh, and want me on, uh, for speaking, same thing, uh, hit me up on LinkedIn and, uh, we can chat. All right, guys. Uh, first Jensen, again, thank you so much for coming and sitting down with us. It was awesome with us. being on. I really enjoyed myself. Yeah. Good, good. We shoot for, uh, those hard hitting questions here. So we're good to go. Uh, for the rest of you out there, hey, man, there's some good advice in this episode. Sit down, uh, think it over. If you're wanting to get into the business, you're wanting to get into the hobby, um, and help make it a little bit better. Uh, it's wide open right now. So you all know that when we do have a guest, one of our favorite parts of them being on is when we get to do the Know Your Character segment. Yeah, this segment we like to take a past RPG character that our guest has had and talk more about them, find out who they were, and then try and see where they would fit in maybe your own world as an NPC. So Jensen Gisborne has been our guest today. Uh, it was a fantastic conversation. And now uh, he's going to tell us about his character that he's brought on. So let's start with, uh, let's go with name. So his name's Kit. Mm -hmm. um, definitely uh, inspired by Knight Rider. I was going to ask. <laughs> it doesn't have two T's on the sheet. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely inspired by Knight Rider. Um, you know, the 80s were a little bit before my time. But, you know, as a kid of, as a kid of the 90s, it's impossible to not be absolutely in love with, with all the great stuff that came out of the 80s, especially with action movies and action TV shows and whatnot. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, a fifth edition D&D character. We talked before that Forgotten Realms was your setting. That was kind of, that was my introduction. And I've played most of my time in the Forgotten Realms as well. Uh, race, species. So he's a, uh, so it's a little, it's a little bit of a homebrew on the flavor side. Okay. Uh, mechanically though, it's straight out of the book. So he's a, uh, he's a Warforged. Um, uh, just your 
no flavor, no mechanical flavor on Warforged, takes straight Warforged. Um, and then he is a multi-class between Paladin and Warlock. So mm. that, you know, beloved, good, beloved yeah. giant first hit every round um, <laughs> combination. Um, you know, it, it, he, he was a fantastic character to play. And while he was mechanically interesting, obviously Paladin and Warlock, uh, Warlock being a Hexblade Warlock, um, mm-hmm. Paladin being a Judgment Paladin, if I do recall okay, yeah, um, yeah. correctly. Um, you know, those give you a lot of really interesting mechanical options, uh, to swing a giant sword. Um, but what made him fun was, was role-playing him for sure. Yeah. 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 So Warforged, um, not traditionally from the Forgotten Realms. They actually came out of the Eberron book. Eberron. Written by, uh, my best friend, Keith Baker. It's a story for another time. They're basically living machines. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That came out. So, uh, so yeah. from from a flavor perspective, even yeah. though I used Warforged mechanically, he's not a Warforged. Uh, he is a animated statue, and um, I felt that the the closest thing for a player class, like a, a PC race, uh, for this idea I had of an animated statue was using the uh, the Warforged. Um, yeah, yeah, that seems like it fits really well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Obviously, with the padlock combo. Did you focus pretty traditional on the stats, like high charisma? Yeah, so he went hard, um, hard strength, strength con charisma. Um, it was like strength con were main, were like first priority, charisma and wisdom being second priority, uh, intelligence and dex being third priority. Um, he was a he was a bruiser character through and through. <laughs> everything I pulled from Warlock and everything I pulled from Paladin was to augment melee capability, um, but the and this is something that you know i've been playing dnd long enough that doing the you know and just do a quick call out to Baldur's gate 3 doing the astarian high charisma style character yeah, where yeah. they're like basically your traditional bard that's kind of everyone's first stop with a high charisma character um this character wasn't that in my head <laughs> but but and this might be a carryover from when i played um dark heresy but to me charisma is more of just presence of a character it's their presence in a room um and something about this very very divinely magic animated statue that's like seven feet tall and 350 pounds um felt like you know he could have this divine presence of personality that that filled up any space he was in right right like as soon as he walks in that's that's the focus you know yeah i got that yeah uh, so tell us, you said he was an animated statue. So a little bit of the backstory. Is he tied to yeah, a certain deity? Yeah. So I, the deity was, was, uh, you know, I, and, and that, okay. So I'm going to go from the perspective of, you know, if you wanted to be tied to a deity in the forgotten realms, play a cleric. Yep. Yeah. If yeah, you yeah, want, fair. if you want to be, if you want to be tied to something that you kind of made up, <laughs> play, <laughs> right. Play they really, paladin. yeah, they yeah, really yeah. opened that up for paladin. It was, uh, it was one of those things where I had this idea. Idea. It was a pirate campaign. Um, it was very high seas oriented, and I wanted him to be um, getting all his power from this under forgotten undersea god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, very Lovecraftian in origin, very like cosmic horror. Um, but that's that's really where I wanted his paladin powers to be derived from. So I wanted this. I wanted this uh, paladin of judgment to almost be like a like a waterway eco warrior, right? Um, he's a animated statue from one of the temples of this God that's been forgotten to ages long past. And, um, that that's, that's essentially the way I played him, right. Is 
uh, the lore of a God that no one knew. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with tenets of faith that no one understood. And uh, basically a character that from the outside looking in was good and, and followed a set of principles. But what those principles were, were really hard to nail down with the other player characters. So I always like that where it is a it's a lawful character. But that second letter seems to be kind of uh, kind of in question. Right. Like the rest of them have to figure it out. I'm following my rules, but that's my rules kind of thing. Yeah. Like I've got morality, but what is it? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I also like that I said uh, you you were in a pirate campaign and you did a character that uh, can't swim. Yeah, no, couldn't swim. Yeah. He would sink straight to the bottom of any body of water that they were on. <laughs> That's fantastic. This character sounds like it was a lot of fun to play. Um, are there any Tons. like specific tenants that came up or anything? Like this, this was the defining part of my character. Uh, as far as right. like, the role, yeah. Play. So it was the 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 big thing that he would always espouse to um, to the other players was that uh, anything um, on the water is of the water. So which led to some really tense moments actually between the players because Kit had a belief that if someone were to die on the water they were going in the water. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, so there is actually, um, and this is one of those moments and it's some, you know, I, I say this and there's a lot of people who play D and D a lot of people who play RPGs who are going to think like, Oh, this sounds like one of those moments where you took playing your character too seriously and ruined everyone's day. But I will tell you with absolute honesty that I was just so in the moment that when we beat a big bad guy, on his pirate ship, I didn't even give it second thoughts. Kid, kid picked him up and just tossed him overboard. <laughs> and and then someone goes, wait, did we loot him? And I was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, I, just, <laughs> I all of a sudden like snapped out of character and I was like, guys, like that's what happens. I'm sorry. Like it was just, I just remember the moment. And um, it was, you know, it was that moment. It was those moments that really make this character stick for right. me yeah. um you know and then and then even more you know when as we as we moved through and he picked up those levels in warlock um i i didn't want to leave the temple i didn't want to leave why he was going so i actually ended up flavoring it that his great sword he had been using the whole campaign was a tine off the trident used by the god uh, and the trident itself was a sentient object right yeah, yeah so yeah. The, so from that point on there was similar but conflicting instruction and interest that he would constantly <laughs> receive uh, because the god was more about the ocean, but the trident was more about waging war on those who come from land. Um, so I, I had this constant uh, battle that he would do basically with with retaining his own abilities. That's good. I, I always love throwing a sentient weapon in. Uh, yeah. Especially like oh, we have we've had players that are like, I'm playing Barbarian because it's easy. And then I give him a sentient weapon and it's always like, psst, psst, kill him. Just kill him. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. So that's great. Awesome. So uh, let's talk about uh, if there was somebody out there that was wanting to use this character to put them in as like an NPC to add a little flavor into their own campaign. Uh, where would they fit? So it, honestly, I've, I've played around just because me and my playgroup have been uh, operating in the same instance of the Forgotten Realms now for 
10 years. Right. Uh, we've played countless campaigns, but we've always, you know, we made the decision 10 years ago that every 5e campaign we were going to play um, was always going to exist in the same instance of the right. Forgotten Realms that we play yeah, in. That's cool. Um, and which has been neat because even when we bring in the uh, the pre-made, uh, you know, um, uh, the Frost Maiden or, you know, any of the ones that we've done, they always took place in the yeah. Forgotten Realms that we play in. And so um, I've actually used him as an NPC uh, since then. And he was, uh, you know, kind of a quest giver. He was kind of like your normal NPC quest giver. Uh, but he, at that point, had, while powerful, become completely reclusive and totally consumed by the direction of his warlock um, patron. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. everything he would he would manipulate the players constantly into doing things that he could kind of on the surface uphold as righteous and justice and and good. Yeah, but yeah. were really just ways to. Um, destroy coastal cities and <laughs> get rid of people who were on the water too much because the uh, the warlock patron didn't like it so they were sinking merchant ships and they were um <laughs> they opened a, a portal uh that we then actually ended up later using as the tie-in to descent into avernus when we played that uh, yeah we've so done we, that one. we yep. kind of rejigged yeah. it so the portal that was open was actually a result of players from a previous campaign that got swallowed into avernus um so you know, it, he was a fantastic quest giver. Um, I think he'd be a really good morally ambiguous quest giver that the players eventually have to fight um, because they realize all the things and all the motivations that he's been giving to them have been horrible. <laughs> <laughs> if, um, if you and, get your players you know, to stop yeah. and go, was that Wait really the right thing? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And honestly, like, you know, fighting... Uh, Fighting, I've always found that fighting uh, like bosses, like boss fights in yeah. D D, are more fun when you can take the players out of the environment they're most comfortable in. Oh yeah. So forcing the players to fight a very powerful paladin warlock multiclass underwater, <laughs> yeah, is you know that's that's something interesting. I like that. Yeah, it changes the field. Uh, what yeah. do you think we could stick him? I actually made some notes while we were talking. the The first one was like a guardian of ancient secrets, lore keeper, like quest mm -hmm. giver in like a forgotten temple type setting. Um, the other one I thought would be absolutely hilarious um, is like the first mate or like muscle of like a tiny Tina like captain, you know, just the yeah. completely opposite of, of, you know, whatever, whatever kind of character you would put as a captain, uh, but always be that like overshadowing, like standing back right behind her. Uh, ready to you know mess anybody up that wanted or you know make them part of the water. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Especially with again that high charisma where it's like when he steps out from below decks, you're like, oh well, my, maybe I've made mistakes here. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I like. Hey, that. there's nothing better than figuring out how to deploy intimidation in combat. Yes, yeah, yes. yes. <laughs> I think right? that that would be perfect. Yeah. So, Jensen, again, thanks for coming on. Um, thanks for bringing Kit along. This one sounds like a really fun character, especially especially if you're looking for somebody, I think, to to make your party question their decisions and kind of uh, make them rethink some of the things that they've been doing. I think this is a great character to lead them down that path and ultimately maybe even give them a, a really interesting challenge to deal with. So, again, thank you for coming along. Uh, guys, Here's another great character for you to put into your games. Uh, feel free and let us know how that goes. 
it's been really, really fun. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. So we're going to start our crowdfunding roundup this time, and uh, we're going to talk about some news that uh, I think is pretty big. So last episode, we talked about GameFound really making a dent in the crowdfunding market last year, taking market share from Kickstarter, kind of making their name. They've been around, obviously, for a while, but they're really starting to gain momentum. This announcement that came out, I think, is going to play into that greatly. So we have the press release that came out of an exclusive deal with GameFound from Kaman. So we all know Come On. They're one of our favorite crowdfunding companies to back. Uh, we have nine boxes of Marvel Zombies over there to prove it. Um, and they are a powerhouse when it comes to a crowdfunding business model. Right. That's who you go to to see how to do it right. Yeah. And, you know, recently we had the news that came out. Um, the two games that were not going to be fulfilled by Mythic Games, Come On took them over and said, hey, we will make these games and finish the project. So overall, Kaman has actually had over $100 million in crowdfunding revenue Man. just from their projects, right? So to announce this partnership, they did launch one of their newer games, which was A Song of Ice and Fire Tactics um, on GameFound. So it's a smaller game, very much kind of like Kill Team, yep. that plays along in that same uh, Song of Ice and Fire universe type thing. I think this is a great opportunity for GameFound to really continue that momentum right. that they started last year and continue to build and build on it. I'm interested to see if other companies, you know, maybe like Awaken Realms or others that really use crowdfunding as a major platform, if they're going to also look to sign deals with them. Yeah, again, I think um, a lot of the industry follows and looks at Come On for how they do their crowdfunding. Yeah. So something like this could definitely... Definitely even up the game a little bit between Kickstarter and GameFound. Yeah, I, I do think part of the reason may be because of the the way the platforms work. Mm -hmm. Whereas Kickstarter, when you have your pledges and all that, you have to usually go to a different website or platform for the pledge manager. Whereas GameFound is able to house all that within GameFound. Right. So it makes it a little bit easier for the end user. I'm sure there were some other deals involved that, you know, are going to be behind closed doors. But at the end of the day, I think this is huge news for not only GameFound, but also for just crowdfunding in general. Yeah. yeah. Competition's always great. To uh, celebrate that new deal, we pulled our first project from over at GameFound. This is a game that is designed by uh, Scott Alms, and it is Conservus. So Conservus is a game that really, the theme of it, revolves around the fishing industry and specifically canning of uh, various marine life. Um, so Scott Alms is known for uh, his role in the Tiny Epic series. Um, he has had his hands in designing many, many of those. So it makes sense that this one is kind of a smaller box game. <laughs> right. And it's, it's a solo game. Yes, it is. Um, and it's definitely within his wheelhouse. Um, I, I like the aspects of this game. So as you are playing, uh, the main component is a bag builder. So you have these small little wooden tokens that represent a few different kinds of marine life, as well as some open sea tokens. And as you are building your bag, you decide as you pull them out, which ones you're going to catch and keep on your boat and which ones you're going to put back in the ocean. 
the cool part about this is if you catch too many of them, then you're, it won't refill your bag because the fish aren't able to breed and populate and make more fish. Um, but you still have money that you have to make because you have goals you're trying to reach. Uh, you have more ships that you can buy to kind of expand your shipping fleet and continue and grow that that kind of system over and over. There's a really nice tension between trying to reach your monetary goals um, as well as not pushing the boundary too much to where you end up losing out on the fish that are available to be caught. So the way that it kind of is a nice push and pull using this bag building mechanism, I think is really, really unique. Uh, it looks like a fantastic game. As a, a person who's a fan of solo games, this is definitely on my list of ones to check out. It is already funded and then some. Their goal was 8000 and they're at fifty five grand now, which, I mean, again, he you're bringing some name into this game. Yeah. Um, and all of their stretch goals that they have listed are already unlocked, and those include um, other markets that you can sell to. There's a couple of, uh, like a new boat, a couple of different to the fishing cards. So those are all unlocked. Um, so you're getting the whole thing when you go after this. Yeah. So price point, it is actually very affordable. Um, it comes in at $25.49, give or take, uh, with the... Uh, for one copy of the game, you can also get three copies if you want for 72. Um, or you can even get six copies if you're a store for 105. So save a little money there if you need to have more than one of these. Uh, yeah, the play looks really good. The artwork on it is uh, kind of fantastic. I really like that. Um, and I, one of the things I really like about GameFound so far as well as we've been looking into this is when you're pledging, I, I feel like it's a lot clearer like immediately what you're going to pledge. Yeah. Yeah. Right there. So um, if you like fishing or canning fish or solo games, there's a lot in this box for everybody. Um, go check this one out over on GameFound. So next one we're going to look at is from a first-time Kickstarter company. This one is kind of near and dear to our heart due to the uh, theme. <laughs> so this is Upshot, a disc golf game. So we haven't really talked about it a lot on the show, but both of us are avid disc golfers. We right. really enjoy it as... Right. Um, another hobby. I, I don't know how we fit it all in, but right. We're there. not really great at it or anything. Don't get oh, me wrong. Yeah, no, no, no. But we'll get out on the course, baby. Yeah. Yeah. So this game is, um, basically a small dexterity game where you are building a disc golf course and then playing it. So in the box, it comes with, uh, some hazards as well as some out of bounds markers. You have a couple of discs in there, of course, that you'll flick as well as the hole. And I like how it's all modular and it basically gives you all the pieces that you need to create your own course. Yes. Uh, you can set it up however you like. You can, you know, put it on different tables. Uh, there's lots of options for you to do it. And I think there's plenty of replayability in there. Yeah. It looks like a fun little dexterity game. Um, I'm a fan of having dexterity games. I think they fit a really nice part of a gaming collection because there are some times where you don't want to sit there and play a game that requires a lot of thinking like you just want to throw something on the table have a good time and go with it yeah um, i think this would actually fit that really well so if you are a fan of disc golf um, definitely check this one out so right now the available rewards um, you can get the game itself for 25 dollars uh, and that includes the base game with all the stuff that comes with it, um, which I love that even include uh, Mando arrows. Right. Um, that way you can definitely cre create the course however you want. 
Um, and that's the main copy or the main pledge. Um, there is a retailer pledge where if you do have a brick and mortar store, you can get 12 copies for 180. Um, but yeah, so it's pretty simple, nice and easy. Uh, first time creator here on Kickstarter. Uh, right now they're at $8,500 of their $15,000 goal and they still have 23 days to go. So it really just started. So not a bad start to this Kickstarter. Oh yeah, absolutely. So definitely, if you are a fan of both like we are, uh, take a look at this. Uh, it looks like a really fun way to set up, have some fun with friends who would also enjoy it. Right. This is a great pre-game night game. Yeah. That would be perfect. So the last one, I got to tell you, uh, we backed this one already, and I'm kind of really excited about this one. Uh, this is the Omni 3 Modular Board Game Storage System. So most of our storage is the IKEA Calyx, yep. right? It's kind of become like the defining storage or whatever. And I like it. It works really well. Games fit in there. I've got some decorations that, you know, that I have on the top. Uh, they're all around our game room. We we're actually looking at buying another big one because we got more games. And then we came across this. It's like it says, is it a modular board game storage? They will send you the STL files. You could print them out on a 3D printer. The options are incredible. Yeah, the modular part of it really defines how you put it together because the options, um, you can go from just a small shelf, depending on the space you have, to something very tall or even something wide, uh, really to fit that kind of space that you're looking for. I also like how they have different shelves. Um, one of my favorite parts actually is they have an STL file for tubes to be able to put play mats in. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I think that's, that's really cool. As somebody who loves to have play mats for their games. Um, uh, I, I like that that is even an option or an even a consideration. Um, they have the files for printing like drawers in there. Um, also little miniature stands, uh, just really however you need your collection to be stored, that's what this will do. So there's a lot of really, really interesting um, themes as well. So they have like a Eldritch horror theme, a steampunk theme, and like an epic fantasy where the side plates actually have something printed on them or a different design. So it looks looks really, really good. Their stretch goals that they've started to unlock are also pretty neat. Um, everything from like a, a paint tray and brush holder to a different set of risers for smaller miniatures, uh, even a padlock compatible door. <laughs> so, yeah. Just in case. Just in case. So, yeah, right now, the different tier levels that are available still. Currently, there is a couple early bird tiers as of time of recording. That's $48 for all the STL files. I think there's less than five left, it looks like. Three left right now. Yep. So, um, definitely, if you hear this, uh, take a look. They may be gone by the time you see this, but... Uh, the, the next level is kind of their, their regular tier pledge, which is $69 um, for all the files. So still, for what you're getting in this Kickstarter, that is that is fantastic. Because this looks like a really great opportunity for someone who maybe can't fit a, like a, a traditional shelf in their normal space. Or maybe they're just looking for something different. From there, we go into like the commercial licensing. Um, yeah, the next one is $250, but it... 
um, gives you a commercial license so that you can sell these 3D prints. Like if you wanted yep. to print them, like you had the ability to do that and then sell the shelves. So that is the early bird for the commercial license. And then it goes up to $2.99 if uh, you miss that. There's two of those left right now. So yeah, this is a really good looking uh, program. I like this. Um, it's going to give me a reason to go buy a 3D printer. Um, <laughs> it's, sure, it's 70 bucks for the files, but you're also going to have to spend another 300 on the printer. <laughs> but if you already have one, or um, if you are able to make use of your local library's 3D printer, which a lot of them have now, yep. um, you just have to pay for the filament. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, they also have a note in here as well. If you would like to purchase this already pre-printed, you can send them a message and they will get you in contact with one of their merchant partners who will be able to print it for you and ship it to you. Fantastic. Uh, 23 days left to go and they are well, well funded. Yeah. Uh, their goal was five grand and they're pushing uh, 200,000 right now. Yep. So all the unlocks, let's go baby. And with that, We've played through several rounds filled with modern art, and now the awards are piling up, and the award deck is getting short. The first player lays out their cards. Two red-blue, two orange-purple, 14 orange-purple, three red-purple, three red-orange, and four red-purple. Finishing their deck and earning $2 from their patron, totaling $8 and earning two awards. Player two starts. A seven red-blue, and they declare their color is red, allowing them to draw a card for every two red cards that are played, thanks to their patron. Four red purple, draw a card. Two red blue, six orange blue, three red orange, draw another card. Two orange purple, two red orange, five orange purple, and a five red purple, draw a third card. And playing the final card, a three orange purple. Earning $3 from their patron, totaling $12. They take the last three cards from the award pile and one more from the extra award reserve, giving them a total of 14 awards and the victory for this game. For the Dapper Meeple, I'm Josh. And I'm Jim. Good night, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for sticking around and listening to our show. If you enjoyed it, let me ask you a favor. Follow us and leave a like wherever you get your podcast. It'll really help us out. And if you have anything to say back to us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for The Dapper Meeple. Or you can email us at dappermeeplegaming at gmail.com. And as always, we'll save you a seat at the table.